okay, so the Christian right is wrong, liberalism is wrong, theonomy is wrong. So you say, well, what do you want me to do as a Christian? What am I supposed to think about politics and government? Well, there's a lot we could say, but let me give you two things. First of all, don't force the Bible to be more specific about government than it actually is. And second of all, we're going to have to learn as Christians to live with the idea that people should have a healthy dose of personal responsibility and liberty. On these two pillars, we're going to build the concept of Christian government. So stay tuned with us right now on Sitters and Saints. In an age of moral bankruptcy, political sleaze, theological confusion, and aimless religion in a mindless church, we're addressing the need for a Bible-based, intellectually rigorous, 21st century Christian faith. This is Sinners and Saints. Theology with an Edge. Thanks for joining us here on Sinners and Saints. As promised, we're going to be talking about a Christian view of politics. We eliminated, of course, uh, on our previous show, theonomy as an option, the idea that basically what we do is just take from the Old Testament laws and we transfer them today, and that's how governments are supposed to operate. If you didn't catch that show, go back to the website and check out that show, which was show one of the series, Christianity and Theonomy. Now, today we're going to talk about a Christian alternative, and we'll grant you from the outset that it's going to be different from things that you have heard in the past about how Christians ought to view government. We acknowledge this is probably an acquired taste. You may have to re-listen to this a few times, but we want you to think about it and give it some serious thought. When we talk about this whole business of government, though, maybe it'd be a good idea to begin by defining our terms. What is government? That's exactly the place we have to begin because so many people, when they think about politics, they think about government, they bring such a large pile of assumptions to the table. We want to give a biblical foundation, a biblical basis for an understanding of government. Remember, it is not relativistic to reject theonomy. It's not relativistic to reject the Christian right, which uses the Bible as slogans for the various causes. We want to give you a biblical argument. And we'll start in the early chapters of Genesis. Genesis 4, Cain says to the Lord, My punishment is too great to bear. Behold, you have driven me this day from the face of the ground, and from your face I will be hidden, and I will be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. So the Lord says to him, Whoever kills Cain, vengeance will be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord appointed a sign for Cain, so that no one finding him would slay him. Here is a very early form of God instituting government for the purpose of what? Protecting the life and the liberty of Cain. Restraining the broader humanity from sinning against another man by killing him. You see what uh, Pastor Adam here is saying as he goes back to Genesis 4 is that government is God's instrument or servant or tool to restrain human sin and human evil. The whole reason why we even need a government in the first place is because we have fallen in Adam. And through that fall, sin has permeated throughout the human race, and people do bad things to each other. And there needs to be somebody there who is able to restrain the evil and the corruption and the thoughts of people's heart when they try to act out on those against other people. And so God here, responding to Cain, 
who is complaining. He's he's complaining about the sin that actually he's a part of is manifested through killing uh, his brother Abel. And he's 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 sort of complaining against God. Well, anywhere I go on earth, people are going to slay me. And so God responds to that by saying not so. And then one of the keys to understanding this passage to see that it is relating to the issue of human government is to get a right translation here of the word. Probably your translation says uh, that God or the Lord put a mark on Cain. But actually that's not what the text is saying. The text is a better translation of this passage is that God made an oath. God made an oath to Cain saying that he would not be roadkill for whoever wanted to come along and take him but that he would institute a mechanism to distribute justice in, in a correct and restrained and public and civic way. Now, one broader thing I want you to notice just about this at the outset, we said what is government. We already kind of launched into the purpose of government, but just notice, and we'll develop this idea as we go through the show, that government is given the sword. And government is given the sword in order to fulfill its specific reasons with that sword. You have to remember this about government. The power that they have, that they wield, is because they have force. They force people to conform to particular kinds of actions. That's how God instituted them, and we'll get more into that as we go along. Yeah, you see this continue on in Genesis. When you get to Genesis 9, post-flood, God is speaking to Noah and telling Noah you know, things to do now in this new world. He tells them that there will be no murder in this world. It is not going to be allowed. But when murder does occur because man remains sinful, God says there must be punishment. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. So here you see a principle being established. What does government do? Government is one that responds to crime that is committed, crime against the person by taking his life. Now, you may be wondering, well, it says, well, by man shall his blood be shed. So is God now instituting the principle that uh, vengeance is okay? You kill my brother, then I pick up the sword and I kill you. Well, no, because Scripture is very clear as you move on to the New Testament, Romans chapter 13, other passages, that God puts the sword in the hands of the state. He doesn't put it in your hands to go settle the score with somebody who has done something uh, against you, a family member, or whatever. So an important principle here is that God has established the fact that there will be a particular kind of justice in society, and that is that the state, a group of individuals who are duly constituted, will have the authority to right wrongs in the area of murder, and that's going to expand out to some other principles here. Another key pass, uh, principle in this passage as well, though, is that God now turns from the concept of there being a state— to the concept of there being a family, because he says now in verse 7, and you, referring to Noah and his family, be fruitful and multiply, team on the earth and multiply it. So a, a very important concept that we need to set down next to the idea that God has ordained that there should be a state as part of the Common Grace Charter is that there will also be family, and these spheres are very distinct and separate, and they must be uh, maintained that way. Let's think about that as we read through the Apostle Paul's words to the, the church in Rome. John referenced it, Romans 13, every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. There is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For these rulers are not a cause for fear for good behavior, but for evil. 
Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same, for it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing, bears the sword as a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Now think about that. The Apostle Paul says, reflecting on the Old Testament revelation, on the truth of God, that the magistrate is appointed to respond to people who have sinned, right? Who have committed crimes against other people. That's why government was established. Distinguishing that responsibility of the magistrate from the responsibility of the family and of private individuals to promote the culture, to see social programs, to see advancement, that is not the realm of the government. God has not appointed them as such. You can't just say the government has might and therefore will enforce whatever it wants to enforce. God has given the government particular tasks and they must do only that which God has given to them. Now that brings us into the to, to the big question. Okay, we, we've made a very specific point here that government is given a mandate to do one thing, to enforce righteousness and to right wrongs. Now we have to get into the question then uh, naturally you're going to ask, well, what kind of righteousness is the government supposed to be enforcing? Because if you don't limit this fairly quickly, it's going to uh, it's going to expand, and they're going to be in, have their finger in every pot imaginable. So what is the righteousness that government is mandated to enforce? Well, what we've already answered is that this is not to have the entire Old Testament code enforced. That, that is not what has been given to them, because we've already seen that there are crimes of thought, if you will, in that, and the government has no ability to do that or right to do so. So what we're dealing with is those things that relate to life, liberty, and property, What we can derive from natural law and the principles that we see already, both in the Old and New Testament. Okay, so to be straight about this, we are saying basically that crime is the unauthorized taking of somebody's life, property, or person. So what we have to do is say, well, where do you come up with such an idea like that? Again, you have to start with the, the Common Grace Charter. You have to show that God decided when he looked at the sinful human race, to institute government specifically, as we saw in those passages, for the protection of physical life. And we see the extension of the protection of physical life being the protection also of someone's property, because that's what it means to live in the world, to be able to fulfill the cultural mandate. Well, is there any, is there any way to, to, to narrow this down to a biblical text? Where would we go if we were trying to say, okay, here's the biblical basis of this position? Well, there's a couple of things you can do. One of them is you can look at what we have of the storyline in the book of Acts, and we can see how the apostles and the church interacted with government and with the state. You see that when you have Ananias and Sapphira sell their property and bring the proceeds to Peter. First, they lied about the amount, and so they died. But notice what Peter said to them. Your property belonged to you. You are free to use the money as you desired, and you didn't have to bring it all. You didn't have to claim you brought it all. It was that lie that killed them. So you see a concept of the right of property in the church, and therefore it must apply outside as well. You also see that when the Apostle Paul is being persecuted, all he says is, I am a citizen and I should not be attacked for these things. He does not say the state, the Caesar, must come with the sword and enforce my right view of God, of which I'm an apostle.
Okay, so one of our pillars we said, which is foundational to a Christian or biblical view of government, is that we can't force the Bible to be more specific than it actually says. Don't don't run to the Old Testament or here and there uh, and abstract some idea from some narrative portion of Scripture and say, okay, yeah, here's another verse on uh, right from the Bible on a Christian view of government. What I'm trying to get at is, yes, there are some principles reflected in Scripture, but what do we do when when we end up finding out that there's not a lot that the Bible actually says. Where now do we go for direction when governments are sitting down figuring out, well, what is righteousness that we're mandated to enforce? We would say that, again, the natural law principle has to be observed, and this comes from the book of Romans. The Apostle Paul makes it very clear. All men know truth. They don't live up to it. They don't care for it. They suppress the truth and unrighteousness, but they know it. And in their conscience, God has already given to them an understanding of right and wrong, and they are held accountable for sinning against that. The principle then is there is already in the nature, in natural revelation, God has given a knowledge of that which is necessary for justice. That's where we will derive our principles from for what a government ought to be. So you're saying a lot of the laws that government will be enforcing or the kind of righteousness the government will be enforcing, you cannot go to Scripture chapter and verse and say, thus saith the Lord. Well, just think of the futility of that. I mean, if you're, if you're a Reformed Christian, you believe that people, got, people hate God in their heart and they reject his word. They don't accept it absolutely at all whatsoever as the authoritative standard for life. And you want to go in the political realm and persuade them to believe the moral norms of the world from the Scripture? That's ridiculous. That's a waste. That's casting pearls before swine, if you would, in a different realm. Okay, I I agree with that, but a lot of Christians out there are going to say, well, you know what, we've always been taught to think that the Bible is sufficient. And so, uh, therefore, there must be a bunch of Bible verses that we can apply here so that people will get a clear understanding from Scripture what government's uh, responsibilities are. Well, we addressed that a little bit in the show on Theonomy last week, and we talked about the sufficiency of Scripture not meaning that it specifically addresses every particular moral situation that we face in our lives. This was the principle you gave at the outset. You can't force the Bible to be more specific than it is. You can't look around you and say, oh, I see all the pressing society, political, cultural, questions that are around us, and therefore the Bible must speak to them specifically in a way that gives me kind of like a political manual. You don't have the right to tell God how to reveal himself in his word. You don't have the right to to dictate to him the agenda of how his people should be thinking politically. He wants you to reason through the natural law. See, what you need to do is say, what is the doctrine of sufficiency? Yes, we as Reformed, we as Protestants believe in sufficiency, But sufficiency, as has been defined by the Protestants from Scripture, is that which is necessary for the knowledge of reconciliation, that which is necessary that we will be in a right standing with God. That is what Scripture is sufficient for. Okay, so you're you're making a basic point. You're saying, well, everybody's in touch with law, uh, naturally, because it's inscribed on their heart. But still, we have to do something. We have to take that law from somebody's heart and apply it to real-life situations. You, you know the whole gamut of, of issues that, that confront us today in contemporary society. What kind of tools or resources can we be utilizing to help us take that, uh, that encoded law which is on the heart and, and bring it practically to the situations that we face here in society? Okay, I'll give you a specific example. This is one that I found helpful. Let's talk about abortion. And, you know, of course, for some reason, we look around us and people somehow pretend like abortion is not murder. 
right? And we become disgusted. We can't believe that. You heard our show on the law when we talked about murder and addressed the evil of aborticide. What am I going to do when my unbelieving neighbor does not accept the premise that abortion is murder? Forget about the exact political application of law, but but it's a problem. We need to protect these defenseless little ones that are growing in, in her mother's womb, right? So I'll go to my neighbor and I'll say, you agree with me, don't you, that I don't have a right to come into your house and to shoot your child? And I say, of course not. And I will say, that poor defenseless child is even more present in a mother's womb. What gives us the right to go in to the most defenseless person in society and to kill them? And the person argues, well, I don't believe that that is a human life. It's just a fetus. And we answer that, well, what about the people that live in the, the Down syndrome home down the street? Because they are not as developed. Do we, are we allowed to go in there and shoot them because they don't measure up to some arbitrary standard, some relative standard of development, or the old age home because they're not as now useful to us in society. Can we walk into there where they're defenseless and shoot them up? So we're reasoning from natural law, from points of identity on their conscience to try and get things accomplished. Okay, well that's one more of a hot button issue, but something that, that's very important. I'm not going to place on the same level, for instance, of human life, but what about property? How are you going to end up defining what property is? That's a huge issue, obviously, here. And this is something that Scripture does not directly address as to what is property. It presumes property. It assumes that everyone naturally knows what it is, and it says you will not steal. We're also told labor so that you will accumulate more property so that you have to give to others. But where does the principle for property come from or the knowledge of property? It's ingrained in us. Political philosophers have worked on that concept, and we know from Locke, he says, that which is in nature, in which you invest your labor, now becomes yours, and therefore you are free to give it away by free grant or gift. You are free to exchange it for something else. But see, you have an external, non-biblical definition being brought in to help clarify scriptural understanding. What Moses is calling the non-biblical definition it doesn't mean it's anti-biblical or there's no biblical reflection of it. It clearly corresponds, for example, to the cultural mandate. When God says, subdue the earth, that's exactly what he's talking about. Produce. We're, we're in a better position as Christians because we use the Bible to sharpen our understanding of natural revelation. So we have, in a sense, a, a more refined understanding of some of these issues that not everybody else is going to have. But... On the other hand, we're not advocating that Christians use explicitly biblical arguments now. We move from our personal lives into the civil realm, though, are we? No, no, no. We, what we do is we address on the property issue, for example. We go to the neighbor and say, listen, okay, you know I'm not allowed to break in your house and take your television. And we want to show them how a, a, a concept of a government not respecting private property is just like me breaking into their house and taking a television. You give them, you work on their conscience that's clear to them in some areas and you expand it to get them to see political principles that are consistent with the reasons why God has ordained government. Okay, so we set up roughly pillar number one here is that don't make the Bible be more specific than it actually is. We do not have the luxury of a whole slew of, of sort of proof text to nail down every one of these. We're going to have to use common sense, reason, and use those as the tools to apply the natural law, which is innate to man. 
that is going to lead us into a, a second issue here, which is we said was the second key or pillar of this Christian position, and that is that we are uh, responsible to give people their own personal liberty here, and a heavy dose of it. Where and, and this is going to be very uncomfortable for us politically because we sort of view the government as the big moral enforcer the big bully who's strong enough to make sure that people live the kind of lives that we want them to live. If we don't like a sin in somebody's life, it's more likely that we're not going to go confront them about it, but we're going to try to figure out how to pass a law to try to enforce the particular kind of morality that we think is just. Uh, an obvious situation here, not, not to inflame the discussion too much, but it's going to, is the issue of marriage. You know, uh, as Christians, of course, we fully believe that a marriage is between one man and one woman. Now, in the political realm, this is a hot-button issue because, as you know, uh, there's all kinds of agitation for homosexuals to have the same rights of marriage that Christians have. How do we respond to an issue like this when we say our stated principle is to give people a heavy dose of personal responsibility and liberty? Well, understand the first thing that we are not saying, and that you would not be saying. We are not saying that by telling the government to stay out of something that we are condoning a particular action. When we say that we don't want legislation for a particular item, we are in no way saying we find it to be morally acceptable or righteous or that God approves of it. We're simply saying that a particular body or organization does not have the right to correct that defect or sin. So as regards to homosexual marriage, or the concept of marriage at all, what we're saying is that marriage is not a government function. It's not given to the government. It's individuals who marry. It is their families who are giving and receiving, and therefore it must be among them that a contract is written and the principles of marriage that they want to see should be articulated. Okay, hold on here, because what you just said is going to be so radical and so foreign to so many people who've grown up with... Uh, so-called, quote-unquote, Christian conceptions of marriage and government and everything, it, it, it almost sounds so alien to them. I'm sure people are going to have a hard time with this. But what you are saying is that the government ought not be in the business of determining who can marriage or marry or license marriages. And we're saying that because we believe the Bible does not authorize them to be involved in these kind of realms. Um, uh, this one among many. Devil's advocate, where does the Bible not tell you? <laughs> <laughs> this is no here. I'll, that's a good. It's a very good question. That's a very good question. And let's go back to, for example, uh, that Common Grace Charter, where God institutes government with the sword. Remember how we defined government at the beginning. Government has the sword to enforce its will against others, right? And so you think that we pay careful attention to why God ins or the particular realms which God of authority which God has given the government. And what did we see? We saw that they were protecting the life and liberty of people, protecting people from getting murdered. And we argued that by extension, that means, of course, you've got to protect their property because that's what it means to, to live and to fulfill the cultural mandate. Now, does it say anything anywhere in the Scripture about social programming, about the government enforcing other kinds of evils? Our answer is no, it doesn't. Well, also historically, you need to understand how marriage has been defined and how it has been administered in especially Western history, especially in the English tradition that we're part of. 
it was not the government that gave marriage licenses. It was the church which registered marriages. And that's where you went to see whether or not someone was married, not to the state. And it wasn't until, I discovered just now, the 1920s that it became a government issue in most of the United States. And most of that was racist. It was to prevent whites from marrying blacks. So you see, you know, we have this thing of, well, no, you have to get a marriage license from the government. It's like, well, if you had told that to people in 1890, they would have looked at you and wondered why you would think the government should interfere with such a personal decision. And also think about this. It's because government has controlled marriage that you have such rampant divorce today. Back when it was churches that were having to counsel and decide if a divorce would be granted, back when families would see the devastation, they didn't just allow divorce for anything, but government comes in and says, to simplify the procedures in court, we're going to give a no-fault reason for a divorce. So anybody who wants to leave can. Government having control over marriage has brought to us a lot of our problems. So why give them even more control? Well, okay, you say fine, all right, churches historically have at least registered the fact of marriage. And we would say in a Western culture, in Western civilization, uh, which was predominantly Christian, that would make sense uh, in, in years, centuries past. But today, with so many unchurched, unchristian people in a multicultural sort of uh, climate in which we live, how would, say, non-Christians then have this marriage registered or acknowledged publicly? Well, we envision it being a private contract issue. So the, the marrying parties will come together and agree to terms on their you know, marital contract. And if one of the parties violates the marital contract according to its terms, then that private contract will be enforceable because it becomes a, a, a liberty and property issue at that point that they agreed to. And so you have the magistrate involved. You have the judge involved in enforcing private contracts. We're not arguing against that. But it's not something that the standards of the contract are determined by Big Brother. That's the difference. And now going back to the idea of, well, won't this legitimatize the homosexual lifestyle and our children will now be subjected to it? No, it won't. Because you, in your church, in your family, will simply state, that's not a marriage. And you don't need the government legitimatizing marriage as we understand it for it to be valid. It's valid by nature. It's valid by God's creation ordinance. And so you would point out to your children, we see a sad thing going on here that these men are in such sin that they are consumed by lust for one another that they have given up all hopes of being well, all hopes of doing that which is right. And so in the same way that we don't need the government telling us Christianity is right, Hinduism is wrong— for us to have validity when we teach our children about Christ, we would do the same thing here. We don't need the government affirming marriage for it to have validity in our eyes or the eyes of our children. Now, to many of you, again, this is going to sound very foreign, very different. You're going to be really shocked and surprised by the arguments that are being made here. And I would just caution you to be careful to evaluate this discussion, not with the talking points that you have received from Jerry Falwell and from James Dobson and the other so-called religious representatives of the religious right. What you need to do is to continue to inform yourself, get educated, uh, think through some of the arguments that are made here that governments historically have not been in the business of licensing marriages, that uh, they have far more historically to do with uh, communal and family relationships than the government ever had uh, a part or a role in defining this. But 
what we want to do now is sort of work through some some issues here. We've set out two key principles that don't make the Bible more specific than it actually is, and don't and 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 you're going to have to learn to live with the fact that people should have a healthy dose of personal responsibility to live as they want, and you not interfere with that even though you don't like it. Now I know this is a, a, a sort of a significant departure in some ways from the Reformed tradition, because what we are used to is saying that the government is supposed to enforce the Ten Commandments. Where would we stand on this, or where would you all stand on this? I would say that that is inappropriate for a number of reasons, because, number one, the biggest problem that you have is that you are now trying to read people's minds and find out what they're thinking in order to enforce the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments says, you shall have no other gods before me. Well, Are we then going to go around and say we are going to extract information from individuals and find out, do they believe in the one true God revealed in Trinity or not? And then okay, but Moses, why are you making it harder than it actually is? It sounds like they should only just have one God. Why are you trying to make it so hard with searching the heart and intentions here? Because we know full well that God will never tolerate a view of him that is incorrect. And therefore, that's why the Church of Necessity has both the Apostles and Nicene Creed that affirms a Trinitarian understanding of God. And we would say any other understanding of God is false. If the magistrate is going to enforce it, then they have to get everyone to sign on to the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed. Well, that brings us into a very uh, interesting area that you bring up here. You're, you're basically saying one reason why the government could not enforce the, let's say, first table of the law, because it would basically have to be um, God had, a theologian or a religious organization. Yeah, it would then. actually have to be God and itself. And you're saying you're opposed to that. Oh, absolutely. There's no possible way that we want the government to actually be running the churches. We don't want them exceeding their bounds and their expertise, their expertise, their duties are to prevent me from being killed and my property from being stolen, not to tell me how to worship. Well, the argument against that, though, is that people who believe that the government should enforce the Ten Commandments aren't necessarily believing that the state should run the church. They're just saying that the state should have a measure of theological expertise right alongside the church. Now, our response to that is simply not how the Apostle Paul speaks about the government. I mean, Paul was living in a time where the government was directly in violation of the first table of the law and of the second table in a lot of ways as a government institution. I mean, the Caesars believed that they were incarnations of divinity in the earth, right? And how does Paul speak of them? Like we said in Romans 13. He's not speaking in the abstract. He's talking about the magistrates that were running things, and he says that they were established by God. They were ministers of God, not some false God. They are ministers of the true God, working his vengeance against evildoers in the world. Now, how could Paul say that when he's talking about idolatrous, blasphemous rulers in his society, in his kingdom? He can say that because for the purposes that they had been established by God, they were doing their job. They were restraining evil in the society. He didn't look to them for their religious convictions, their religious promotion, their social programs, their enforcement of morality, because that was all wrong anyway. So I think what you're saying here, in a roundabout way, 
is that you have to be very careful about who you let into your house. If you want the government to start enforcing the first table, the the Ten Commandments, and that goes back to the first table of the law, then it's as Moses has been pointing out, it's a lot harder to start enforcing that because now you need somebody who's a theological expert on various misunderstandings of the doctrine of the Trinity. You have to have somebody there who is a top-notch theologian deciding serious doctrinal issues. But keep in mind, the Apostle Paul, who is declaring that he has the gospel of God and he is not ashamed of preaching it, never, ever turns to Caesar to enforce the right theology. He merely turns to Caesar and says, protect me from harm. Do not allow them to kill me when I have not sinned against the laws of the state regarding murder, theft, or whatever else. Leave me free to preach. You're free to continue on you with your idolatry. I will try to convince you and persuade you by God's grace. If the Apostle Paul won't have Caesar come in to back him up, who are we to then say, no, Caesar has this authority to do so? It doesn't make any sense. Jesus is very clear about the distinction between his kingdom and the kingdom of this world. I mean, his kingdom, his church, those officers that he has appointed to preach his gospel are the ones responsible. The church community is the one responsible to enforce the pure doctrine and the pure morality that God desires. My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. Now, I don't want you to take those words just casually. He's talking about the sword, isn't he? And that's the same thing he does in in Luke 9, when, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them when they don't receive the truth? And he turns and rebukes them. He rebukes them. The Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. It doesn't mean that the government doesn't have the sword. The government does have the sword to enforce its particular things, but the kingdom of God, the purity of worship, the, the, the moral ethic, the holiness of God is to be enforced by the church, and that without the sword. So Jesus here, and you bring up a very important point, is making a distinction in terms of his kingdoms, and there's two kingdoms, and you need to have this theological framework really to make this whole philosophy, which we've been outlining here about civil government, you need that framework in order to, to make this uh, be sensible unto you. Because uh, you're so used to hearing the idea, well, if Jesus isn't Lord over all, he's not Lord at all, and exa- a righteousness exaltus, exalt a nation, the sin is a reproach to any people, and you have all these... Take the culture yeah, for Jesus. Yeah, but make sure Jesus is, you know, everything in submitting to the Lordship of Christ. But you have to understand... The guy's a Christian, you got to vote for him. But but you know what? There's, there's two kingdoms. Scripture's very clear about that. Jesus, by virtue of his divinity, participates in a rule of God over the universe because he's God. But Jesus, as mediator, has a very specific role and very specific kingdom, which is rule over the church. And if you start confusing those, that's exactly when you have such ideas as constitutional amendments to confess Jesus as Lord over the nation, you're going to turn the government into an enforcer of Christian morals and Christian doctrine. And yet Jesus doesn't ever give that mandate or authority uh, to governments. He has two kingdoms. He's very clear about that. Now listen, John, I'm sure people are... Some people are even trembling as they're hearing us because, you know, from, from all different camps, some people are going to say, though, you guys are clearly departing from your history. I mean, yeah, maybe in the past century there have been some revisions to your earlier confessional statements. We think of the Belgic article on the magistrate. But clearly in our history, I mean, even think of John Calvin himself. He believed, didn't he, that the magistrate should enforce the Ten Commandments. Well, how do you deal with that? 
Are you guys willing to admit that at least? Oh, yeah. We, we're willing to admit that there is change in some of the understanding. But even then, I would say it's not 100%. I don't think that they were consistent during their own lifetimes. And they also understood that there is a right of rebellion against the magistrate. Calvin's book four, he makes it very clear that there comes a time in which the magistrate will exceed his bounds, and therefore it is right and proper to restrict him from continuing further, even to the point of overthrowing him. Well, that cannot be if the magistrate has absolute right to enforce or to command all things. There must be a limit. Well, you asked, though, and I just come back in on this, you asked that we departed from our tradition, and a couple things are very important here. First of all, we do not subscribe to John Calvin. We subscribe to our confessions. Those are the documents that have binding authority over what we may teach and what we must defend here. And the only reason they have that binding authority is because they are faithful summaries of Scripture, tested and proven, and therefore we subscribe to them, and that does bind us, not some general historical tradition. Well, and I think it's important to bring in at this point, because I'm sure there may be somebody who's thinking about this, what about if... The an original or an older version of one of your confessional statements, for example, the article in the Belgic Confession on the magistrate, gives the government or gives the impression at least that the government has more authority than what you are propounding today. What do we do with that? Well, we have seen in our Reformed tradition the revision of our confessional statements over time, not as private individuals, but as a broader confessional church community as the Church is together, revising those articles to be in conformity more clearly with the Word of God. In other words, we're not scared to say, whether we're talking about Calvin or even in our own confessional tradition in the past, in some specific instances, that we were wrong, and that we were not as precise biblically as we should have been. And we went through, not privately as individuals, but as a church, through a process of repentance, so that the confessions to which we subscribe today in their current form are the ones which we believe to be the most consistently biblical. And that brings, uh, just to follow up on that, brings back to the second point I was going to make earlier when we began talking about this. I said that we are bound to subscribe to our confessions, not particular individual theologians and their thoughts or practices. But also here, uh, what we have to keep in mind is our confessions, the writings of... uh, Older theologians and practices very often are culturally and historically conditioned, and sometimes they mistake that conditioning for what God says. But as the point has been made here, is that we don't evaluate based upon what they were doing and why they practice what they practice. We we evaluate the truth of statements based upon God's Word, and that has to end up being the final authority. And as we come back to the issue we're dealing with here, we have laid out two very clear principles, is that we may not force the Bible to say more than it's actually saying. To do that is wrong. That is to go beyond Scripture, and a fundamental principle of our faith is that Scripture alone has the authority to tell us what to think and believe. And also on this whole business of personal liberty here. We, we can't force people to, to own our beliefs when they don't. Keep in mind that even in Scripture, the Apostle Paul makes it very clear. The law was not given to bring about righteousness. The law shows you your sin. Only Christ can bring about righteousness. For those of you who, as Christians, believe that we need more laws to make this a more moral nation, you've completely misunderstood the use of law from Scripture. Scripture 
tells us why law has been given. And so we must have that as our basis. Therefore, what once we do, we must show people righteousness in our living. We are to love one another so that people will know we are disciples of Jesus Christ. Therefore, we need liberty in order that our actions will be different from that of the rest of the world. And therefore, if we want liberty, we must grant liberty to others even where they are wrong. Okay, so like we said, a lot of you guys are thinking about this. This is very new to many of you. As you begin to sort through these ideas and think them through, um, you're going to be thinking in terms of action items. What do we do with all of this? I want us to wrap up our discussion here with with uh, a few comments here. What does somebody do with these thoughts now and, and the philosophy that we're outlining here? Right, so you're all excited politically. You're, you're interested in exercising your citizenship in the kingdom in which you live in a responsible to Christian reformed way. What do I do? First thing, educate yourself. If you're anything like I am, you're just going to have to admit that you're way behind the eight ball. I mean, the common man in American society today knows very little Let's just face it, and I mean, this is obvious in the churches, and this is very true of me personally. We need to educate ourselves more about the foundation of free government. We need to read the Constitution. We need to read the Federalist Papers, the Anti-Federalist Papers. We need to think, read early political philosophy. We need to understand natural law and how we talk about you know, the various categories of natural law, life, liberty, and property, and these freedoms. We... We have to be educated. You cannot have zeal and accomplish anything good without learning. And the necessity of this can be very simply demonstrated. If you decide to go help someone who is poor or destitute, and you're going to go help them build a house, it really would be helpful if you understood the different tools. What is a hammer? How is it used? Rather than just grabbing wood and walking out there not knowing what to do. Or if you're going to work in a clinic to help poor kids or something like that. It really would be helpful if you understood what the thermometer reading means, what it means to have the following symptoms. You need education. You want to be involved in politics, learn what it is, and that means it's going to take time. Not simply run out and vote, learn. Okay, so one one concrete thing we can do, because it's natural to act on beliefs, is we can go out and begin to educate ourselves uh, but suppose we get real educated and very convicted about our ideas, and then, like you say, oh, we're going to run straight to the poll booth because that's one of the most natural ways to act out on our ideas. But suppose we do other things that are even you know, beyond that, and maybe some people, when they get ideas in their head, they go do really goofy things. Uh, they, they start a revolution all on their own. They stockpile you know, thousands of weapons in their backyard and begin to hole up waiting for World War III. What do we do after we get this knowledge? Well, if you've heard of the just war theory, you'd want to apply that to your political involvement, too, and your response to the government that is ruling over you. I mean, you've got to measure very carefully, for example, any civil disobedience that you might be uh, tempted to, to take on. You may think that the government has overextended its authority in your life, and we would... I don't think have any problems saying very publicly that our government does do that. But you've got to measure very carefully how you respond to that as a Christian. You want to measure the value of your response in terms of its usefulness for actually advancing the political ends that you like. You need to understand the principles of liberty and free government, and you need to start telling others about it. 
reason with them. Let your thoughts be corrected as you are interacting with others. And so it's necessary before you say, all right, now I'm at the point I'm going to impose on others through legislation the following things. How about you make sure that what you understand is even right? Interact with people. See if your views are wrong. See if they're consistent with the principles of human dignity and freedom and the right role of government. And then as you build up your own knowledge, you start building up a group around you that shares that consensus. And then you're able to actually have more of a positive effect without violence. I think that leads us into a a third point, a specific practical application point that you're looking for in this issue. And that is that you've got to be self disciplined personally people when they think about politics and they get excited and i'm no different you know you get zealous you 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 want to run out there and get all of this stuff accomplished a lot of times what will get lost in that mix is your own private righteousness your own private social responsibility one of the keys to liberty and i have a friend at the church who keeps reminding me about this even in the political realm one of the keys to liberty is personal responsibility and if you are a person who is politically zealous but your life is in disarray you are actually as it turns out the cause of a lot of the political problems that are in society so it is it's very sobering to think about this but if you want to be politically active and influential and you want to see the government restored to its right purposes and call it out for some of its ills then get your life together not only that your credibility is shot Nobody will listen to you if your life is in disarray and you are cause of all these political problems because of the breakdown of your personal responsibility. How many of you would trust a financial counselor that is driving a 1979 Datsun because he can't afford to buy a new one, but he's telling you how to invest all your money? You would have absolutely no respect for such a person. You would laugh at him and ignore him. So if you're going to tell people, here is what should be done, and this is how you should live, it would be really helpful if they could look at your life and see that you're not a complete nut job yourself. Do you love your family? Do you fulfill your role in your family and in your church and in society? Do others benefit by your presence? Simply reciting a slogan means nothing if, there's an, if you don't back it up with your own life. So fix yourself as you are seeking to do good for others. And finally, can I give you just one piece of friendly, maybe even pastoral advice? Don't overprioritize this. This is one issue among many. We love to do we love to talk about this. We love to sit down over coffee and cigars or whatever and, and hash out these ideas. But at the end of the day, you know what? This is just one part of life. God expects you to be faithful in all. All the realms that he's called you to, as fathers, as husbands, as wives, as children, as students, as those who take up vocations, don't get over-consumed with this. We need to learn how to trust God, uh, even when the governments that we're a part of, the societies that we're a part of, look like they're falling apart or are not as optimal as they ought to be. You know, at the end of the day, God's still in control, and that means then that we don't over-prioritize this as an issue. We've given you a lot to think about here. And we trust that as you weigh this, as you think it through, as you chew on it, as you think about these principles that we've lined out, particularly the main two, that we should not force the Bible to say more than it actually does about government. And number two, we're going to have to learn to give people a healthy dose of personal liberty and let them exercise it, even if we're not in agreement with all that they're doing. These are two pillars of a Christian and biblical view of government. 
We want to thank you for joining us today on Sinners and Saints. Join us next week as we tackle more topics with the truth of God's Word on Sinners and Saints, Theology with an Edge.